Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 210, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, what is pending in the Build Back Better bill in Congress that could impact schools and students? We'll dive into it. Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, our guest says that we need to reconsider the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, and possibly replace those with some new R's. Find out what those are in just a bit. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, director of curriculum and instruction and co-host Christina Paula. Christina, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm fantastic. I just came off of a five-day holiday break, which is really like nine days to just relax, watch football. I'm fantastic. That is good to hear. Yeah, there was a lot of good football over the the break. I thought Alabama was going to lose the other day. It was a a close one. Mm, (laughs) It was very close, and it was... um, Really exciting as we were there visiting, um, and I was pretty shocked actually that they were able to come back and take the game. I thought uh, that it was like a done deal. I was in a restaurant and everyone was like, "They're they're." It was time for them to leave. Like their food was done. They had like to go boxes on the table, but it was right before they went into overtime, and no yep. one would leave. Like their table it was kind of funny to watch. Like everyone's like, "Nope, I'm staying and I'm watching this on the TV in here." I want to pick up where we kind of left off on the last show, which was uh, the infrastructure bill that recently passed. We talked about how that infrastructure bill affected schools. And today I want to talk about the bill that's pending in Congress. This one has passed the House, not the Senate yet, Um, but that is the Build Back Better bill. Some of the things in there are the $400 billion set aside for free universal preschool. Um, This is for all three and four-year-olds. Um, the White House has dubbed this as the largest expansion in education program since the creation of public high school. Um, that might be rhetoric. It might not. But what are your thoughts on that? Universal pre? Well, it it is the largest. Um, as you know, it's been at the forefront of a lot of conversations um, across the nation. Uh, we're seeing the impacts of having those programs in place. And so I'm glad a lot of emphasis was put um, on putting some some funding there. I'm glad about it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are. And and again, this is past the House already. So we are making strides towards this. Um, another thing within that $400 billion price tag are uh, child care subsidies. And, and I'll break this down a little bit. Families making under two and a half times their state's median household income would have to pay no more than 7% of their income towards child care with a federal subsidy picking up the rest after a three-year phase-in period. Now, families making under 75% of the state median income would get free child care altogether. Um, and in order to qualify, an adult in the house would have to be engaged in an activity such as work, school, or job training, uh, or be receiving some sort of medical treatment for a disability. So somebody couldn't just, you know, stay at home mm-hmm. and do nothing and, and send their kid to some daycare facility. Listen, 
That's huge. So many people are hitting brick walls. They're trying to take care of their families. They're trying to work jobs. Daycare is extremely expensive. And in my opinion, sometimes it's like having a car note. And by the time you have a car note and get yourself to and from work and pay our rising gas prices, it's almost impossible to take care of your family the right way and get coverage. So I'm really excited about that and surely wish that had been available back Mm -hmm. when we were young, you know, in our marriage and when our family was, you know, growing, that would have been so helpful for us. For, for me, and I'll, I'll get personal. Um, I had my first child when I was 20 years old. Um, so Mm -hmm. I was a baby having babies and, um, childcare was a major challenge for us. Mm -hmm. Um, we actually did have some assistance for a little while. It was very difficult to get and then it went away and we had to, um, you know, pay out of pocket completely. And there's that conversation that I think every person who doesn't make a ton of money has when it comes to daycare. And that is every cent I'm making is going to daycare. So what's the point of working? Yep. Um, exactly. And so this would, I think, only increase the potential job force because it removes that that barrier, excuse, yes. yeah, that barrier mm-hmm. for not working. It's because daycare is covered. So I'm actually going to make some money rather than just spend it on that daycare. So, And I, I want to agree with you that it can be an excuse for some, but I do think for a lot of Americans, it's a barrier. Um, when you, after you go ahead and pay that fee, and let's remember that over the years, um, that fee has gone up tremendously. I mean, when, when my youngest son um, started uh, for going to with childcare, it was at least I think one fifteen a week, and so imagine what it probably is now on top of needing to provide all of the diapers and the materials and everything for your baby. It's 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 an awful lot for a four or five week month, and that right off the top because listen, there's no wiggle room. Mm-hmm. Um, whoever's running the childcare facility, they have a family and, and bills to pay too. Oh, they're not so rich. They I've, I've never known anyone with like right. a childcare facility that's like loaded. They're always there that's working. Right. You know. And And they can't afford to let you, you know, skip weeks. It's just not going to work because they also have to pay pay their child care workers and, you know, have all of the materials and the things that that they need. So I think this is a a breakthrough for um, working families. Right. And and I will say, yes, barrier is a more eloquent term than excuse. I appreciate that. Uh, College grants are also in this bill. Um, So it looks like Pell Grants for low-income college students would increase by $500 from the current rate of $6,495 in annual assistance. And the proposal also increases funding for um, HBCUs, uh, tribal colleges, while adding funding for job training programs as well. The estimated price tag on that is $40 billion. Um, That's a good investment. I have had heard, heard a little, and maybe I misinterpreted it. I thought there was some some kickback about the Pell Grant and how that was being handled. Are you aware of that? No, I have not heard that. I did not find okay. that in my reading. So I'll research that. I'll, I'll asterisk. Yeah, up. I'll asterisk that one. So we'll, we'll come back around to it. Um, and then um, some things that were cut out of the bill uh, is the paid family leave. So it was very popular in public polling, but. Um, originally, there was a plan for 12-week version of paid family leave, and then it was cut down to four, and now it's been completely eliminated. Apparently, Joe Manchin uh, over in the Senate side was not on board with that, um, so that's out. And free community college was also on the table, and so the initial version of the Build Back Better plan included two years of free community college, which would have cost $109 billion, and that's been stripped out. Wow. So, so anyhow, yeah, it kind of is what it is. I mean, you know, it would be nice to have a free community college. It is a hefty price tag, uh, no doubt. 
And uh, it looked like in order to get this bill passed, uh, that's that's where we are with it. Well, I'm I'm just glad that it's happening. Well, yeah, it, and, it seemed like there was you know a lot of hoops to jump through initially. And I don't want to be too optimistic. I mean, the House wouldn't have passed this bill if they hadn't worked back doors to make sure the Senate is likely to pass it as well. Um, as of the recording of this show, um, it looked like it probably was going to make it through the Senate, but um, it's not a done deal just yet. Um, other story that kind of popped up on my radar dealt with um, evaluations. Uh, apparently, according to a team of researchers, efforts to toughen teacher evaluations from about 2009 to 2017 show quote, no positive impact on students, okay? And I'm, I'm really curious to hear, hear where you weigh in on this. It was a team of researchers from Brown and Michigan State Universities, the University of Connecticut, and North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and they analyzed the timing of state's adoption of the reforms alongside with district-level student achievement data from 2009 to th- 2018. I think I said 17 before. And they measured uh, standardized math and English language arts test scores. Uh, they came back with basically that uh, no real improvement was shown in test scores uh, after increasing the strictness and the toughness of evaluations of teachers. Does that surprise you? Um, I, it, it, I don't want to say that it surprises me. I think I don't agree <laughs> with the results. I, I just don't think it's a true picture of of what evaluations do, but then I, I guess I would have to have more information to know, you know, exactly how they conducted that research and, and what evaluation tools were they referring to? Because for Mississippi, our teacher growth rubric, notice the word in there is growth, mm-hmm. is designed to give feedback throughout the year to help teachers grow and meet expectations if they're not there. And if they grow and meet expectations, it most definitely should have an a positive impact on student achievement. I am summarizing a long report. I will link to it if somebody wants to dive into this. Um, But I mean, they apparently were looking again at the student achievement when like they're seeing no real jump, no evidence that on average, the reforms had any small positive effect on student achievement while this evaluation was going on. So that's, that's, I can understand that if the purpose of the evaluation was just to, you know, critique and not to grow and impact the teacher. And, and so that's, that, this is where I want you to weigh in. I agree 100% with what you're saying. It's almost like, yeah, it's measuring, um, I guess you can say that there's no achievement, but is it, are we, is there something else that's not being measured that they're missing out on? And maybe, I mean, do you feel like, I guess you're saying teachers got better because they've got feedback. Yes. And not only feedback, that process should allow administrators and teachers to unpeel the lesson, the skill, the standards, um, the practices that the teacher is putting in place, and then further the conversation that goes deeper into collaboration, possibly modeling for the teacher, and or if that teacher is mastering um, the growth rubric or the evaluation rubric, then exposing all the other novice teachers or teachers not as, you know, um, effective to that teacher's practices. It's just so many things that should be that should be involved in the evaluative process. Uh, without a doubt, from my experience of managing people, when you give people feedback, they 
get better at their job and they want the feedback, right? They crave it. They want to know how they're doing. So I I feel like the mandate of doing these evaluations probably forced a lot of principals to have to check that box. I've got to give feedback to all these people. I've got to do it somehow. Mm -hmm. And, And so I think that has to be have a positive effect. But to hear this, it was a little surprising to me to say like, oh, well, the students, their test scores didn't get better. But maybe the teachers were happier. Maybe they became better teachers you know, even if the test scores don't necessarily reflect, it's not like they went down, not like the students got no. worse grades. And I but. think that's important, too, um, because it has an impact on how they feel about their profession, which mm-hmm. to me should, again, impact the culture and climate of a classroom, which impacts student achievement. If you ask so, a lot of people why they leave a job, it's because, like, I don't know how I'm doing. No one ever tells me anything. I just, you know, I'm just mm-hmm. here. And-, and they don't feel significant or they don't feel, you know. That they're making a difference. And the only way they can know that is by getting feedback. As you did evaluations um, when you were a principal, did you feel like the teachers were annoyed that you were doing it? Or you feel like, no, great, I want to hear how I'm doing? No, because I was open and honest about it. We had lots of conversations. Um, I met met with my teachers often, planned with them. And so, you know, I developed that relationship to where I can get in those classrooms even without scheduled observations. And it became kind of normal to have administrators and um, peers in their uh, classrooms observing them and giving feedback and even, you know, being responsible for modeling for our newer teachers. And if I had a veteran teacher that was struggling, I tried to talk with them one on one about, you know, my concerns, what I was seeing, how I could help them. And then it sometimes it takes a little more effort to get them to see because they've been so comfortable doing the same thing they've been doing. But if we want different results, we have to change our practices. And so you have to work on that through your culture and climate to where teachers you know, are comfortable receiving feedback, but not just feedback from administrators, feedback from their peers. I hope the takeaway from this isn't, all right, well, we don't need to do evaluations. It is, all right, well, maybe we can do them even better. You know, rather it's it's more of let's let's keep working on this and figuring this out. You know, whenever I hear, you know, so often, a thousand times a day, we hear a team of researchers discovered X, Y, or Z. And you kind of wonder, yes. like, who are these people? Like, But the fact that this touched from multiple universities made me feel like this probably doesn't have a bias to it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So so again, I hope that the takeaway isn't like, all right, well, let's do away with evaluations because of what these researchers found. Well, I certainly can't agree with them. If we take away evaluations, then we're taking away the opportunities for teachers to grow and develop, um, you know, their practice. Yeah, agreed. Well, Christina, are you ready for today's Bright Idea? I am. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is going to explain why we need to rethink the way we teach students and that we need to reconsider maybe the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and possibly replace those with some new R's. Jose Antonio Bowen has been a uh, leading innovator in, for change for over 35 years at universities like Stanford, Georgetown, and the University of Southampton, UK. He's also served as dean at Miami University and SMU. He's the author of the hit Teaching Naked, and his latest book is Teaching Change, How to Develop Independent Thinkers Using Relationships, Resilience, and Reflection. Jose, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks for having me. We're going to dive into these three R's that, that you suggest, relationships, resilience, and reflection, in a little bit. But at first, I think it's important to establish kind of like where you are in terms of your thoughts on teaching and and how things are quickly changing in this world. I I know you like to talk about change a lot. um, And I've listened to a speech from you and you even used a car key as an example. Let's kind of dive into that a little bit. 
<laughs> yes, well, so that was that's a real example. So my my daughter, you know, moved and said, "I'm going to park the car here while you drive it every once in a while." And she had one of these new cars that doesn't have a car key; it has a, a fob. And so I kept using it like a car key. You know, I'd take it out of my pocket, walk into the car, and then go, "Well, now where do I put it?" You know, there, this is one of those early ones, so there there was no slot. Uh, there's they've now figured out they have a, a plastic slot that's not a place where you put your key, but it's a place that you put this fob for old people. Uh, and so, uh, you know, real, it took me, I'm embarrassed to say, you know, year <laughs> to figure out, actually, it's not a key. It's a personal identity device and I can stay in my pocket and I can just push the button. Uh, and so the, the point is, is that when you give somebody new content or new technology, right? We've all seen this, like the, the, the university buys a new software system that does things in a new way. And it's like, oh, but it doesn't do the old thing. I want it. You know, it's like, I used to click here. It's like, oh, no, it doesn't work. That It's a whole different way of doing things. And so we continue to try to use new content with our old assumptions. And that's just human nature. And so that was an insight that I had about how I think and work. And I, it's true that we all do that. And so the, the trick for the key fob was to not think of it as a key anymore, but to think, well, it's it's a personal identity device. It's they should have made it a wristband. It's really a very new way of of interacting with the with the car and getting it to go. So with information, we have to do the same thing. We have to think about, you know, if I give students this, what they're going to do is try to put it into the keyhole that they have, right? Every you know, I use the metaphor of a closet, right? That everybody brings a closet, and you. It's organized, the, your experiences and your knowledge are organized in a particular way based upon your understanding of the world. And so when you get something new, let's say a new book on pedagogy, well, you don't have any other books on pedagogy, so where do you put it, right? Do I put it with the science books? Do I put it with the, with the discipline? I mean, right, I don't, in the career books, you know, where do I put it? And so over time, if, you, if I give you enough books on pedagogy, you'll eventually have a, an organized section. And so... Change is hard for people, and it's individual because we all bring our own set of stuff. And then the third piece is that the world is now valuing change more than it ever did. The jobs of the future are unknown. Uh, while democracy has always required changing your mind to be a, 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 an important for citizens, boy, has it become scarce. And so the idea that we're preparing people to be agile, nimble thinkers who can change their mind has increased in value, in my view. When I was in school in the in the 80s and 90s dating myself, um, it was all about teaching me and me trying to retain information, right? You know, when was the date of this? And and there, of course, was, you know, we're going to teach you how to be a critical thinker as well. That was in the 90s, you know, something that was bubbling up. But But I guess you're saying that all that's kind of gone out the window. We can find information in our pockets, on our phones. But now what is the role of a teacher? Is that where you're going with this? Yeah. I mean, look, it's not, content is still going to be important. There is stuff you have to know. And human beings don't think in the abstract. We actually think uh, with concrete ideas. So you do need ideas. But but the idea of weed out courses where we're going to see how much you can remember on every midterm every few weeks um, which, by the way, I, I think is is much more common than we'd like to admit. I see it happening all the time. Uh, I have a you know a niece in college who's like, yeah, here's what we're doing, here's what they expect, and it's like, wow, really? You got 700 kids, and you're just trying to you know figure out who can memorize the most. Um, and, and and so when you're doing that, you know, she she doesn't 
her view of college is that, well, it's just like high school. I got to memorize a lot of stuff and then they test me. Um, you know, and that's not what college should be about. It should be a different kind of learning. And the irony is that we talk about this all the time. We say, oh, no, college is so different from high school. And, you know, I teach critical thinking. And it's like, well, if you're going to teach critical thinking, you actually have to spend time doing it. There was a, stu a study actually at Fresno State uh, in California where um, students were, were given a course uh, on critical thinking. And it was, it was about, you know, like, like um, conspiracy theories and, you know, aliens landing and various sorts of things. And, and it was done to science students. But they found that unless they actually specific, they got into the specifics of here is what this means, here's what you think this is about, how do you judge this information, that a general course on critical thinking, even teaching critical thinking generically, didn't have the effect they wanted. So, so I'm, and all of the data shows us that what we think is happening in college by magic is not happening unless we are really paying attention to it, teaching it, and assessing it. Students actually leave college more convinced of the opinions they had in high school than when they entered. Uh, and and that now that does does relate to whether also how many friends they have in college, right? So the thing that actually matters more than courses, roommates and friends, right? So if I'm on Facebook all the time talking to my high school friends, guess what? I, I retain that way of looking at the world. But if I make a whole lot of new friends and have a roommate from a different religion or a different country or different ethnicity, I am much more likely to change my mind about that group and to have more uh, open opinions later in life because I learned something new about that person. So that's why my first R is relationships. Right. And so let's dive into this. And, and this is really kind of your advice, I guess, for all educators, whether you're K through 12 or college or whatever. But but your first R again is, is relationships. And, and I, listening and reading what you, you have here, you talk about the importance of the fact that like students think in communities. It brought me back. I don't know if you've happened to read. Uh, I think it was, the book was uh, Sapiens. Um, and, yes, of course. Yeah. And, and it was great in, in terms of that regard. It was basically saying like our, our species learns and grows and, and uses communities to almost as a protective mechanism, I guess. And, and that kind of is what I was hearing from you a little bit. This is how we learn. Yeah, absolutely. No, and I was, you know, you know, you know, Steve Sloman's The Knowledge Illusion, you know, why we never think alone in this new book, Survival of the Friendliest, right? Um, that, you know, 10,000 years ago, uh, we were in groups. And our survival depended upon the group. You know, we were hunting mammoth. We were, you know, doing a group activity. And so think of loneliness, for example, right? Why do we feel that emotion of loneliness? Well, we feel it because those who didn't feel it and stood around on their own eventually got eaten or, you know, couldn't find enough wild carrots to survive. And so the those of us who we're in the group and, you know, the, the leader says, stand over here with the spear and you stand over there and you run after the, those of us who said, yes, sir. Okay, we'll do that. That sounds like a great plan, even if it was a stupid plan. Those of us who listened to the tallest person survived. So tall people have an advantage that, that people, we were more likely to believe them, to listen to them. They actually make more money. Uh, and so we are, you know, we, in college, we're so dependent upon group discussion. We think that, you know, we're going to discuss things and that'll be, you know, great for, for sharing ideas. But what's mostly going on, by the way, especially with adolescents, 
is that people are, you know, surveying the group. Well, who's talking? Who's smiling? Who do I like? Who do I want to date? Who's on the lacrosse team that I want to be a part of? And that may not be conscious, but that determines who we listen to and whether we think their data is credible. And of course, there's lots and lots of data that, you know, if somebody in a in a lab coat with a clipboard tells you to do something, you know, the Stanley Milgram experiments, even tells you to shock this other person, you know, past the danger zone. I mean, in those experiments, you know, 100% of people went to the danger button. 60% of people went until the subject was was not responding at all. So we're we're much more susceptible to the influence of other people based upon external factors like how they're dressed, how tall they are, whether they're good looking. And so what you listen to depends on who you know, who you like. So, right, if you want students to listen to you, they have to like you. They have to have a relationship with you. And right, that seems incredibly sad. It's not my job. I mean, I can hear the, you know, the, the already, but the human nature is such that you know students will come into your class, they will write down what you say to write down, they will regurgitate what you say to write down, and you will have absolutely zero effect on them six months later. Um, and if you want to get in their heads and you want them to change their mind and to rethink their assumptions, who they have a relationship matters way more than the content. And that's just the way the brain works. That's good stuff. Uh, now, the next R is resilience. Um, let's dive into that one a little bit. So resilience is hard and it's also often misunderstood, right? That, you know, there's a lot of, of work on grit, uh, persistence, um, and, and there's no question that, that grit is a good thing, right? But we have decades now of research on willpower. It was called willpower, then self-control. Uh, we have, you know, mindset is, is newer, um, and so all these things, you know, make sense when you have more of these things, good things happen. The problem is that with most of this research, it's people have not been able to figure out, well, how do I get you more willpower? How do I get you more self-control? How do I get you more grit, right? Having more grit means you're going to be better at all sorts of stuff. But changing your mindset is hard. There's a, There's been a little bit better work on, on changing mindset, but... You know, the early experiments on willpower, you know, Ray Baumeister would, you know, have you come into the room and and if you could smell cookies, you know, and you got a cookie, you did more math problems than if you were smelled cookies, but you were given radishes, right? The famous cookies and radishes experiment. Well, that's great. That tells us that, you know, radish, you know, being disappointed in radishes are bad, but it doesn't tell me how do I help you other than give you cookies. <laughs> so uh, it turns out that resilience you know, in really recent research is more of a community. It's more about resources, right? So if I'm always hungry, if I've never known stability, I don't have as much resilience, right? I'm not going to be as comfortable with discomfort because I'm hungry, right? Even the early marshmallow experiment, uh, right? The, the Walter Michel that, you know, he, all those people he tested were, you know, the children of Stanford faculty. They weren't hungry. They could wait for a marshmallow. And when people tried to replicate those tests on poor kids who were hungry, it didn't work. It wasn't predictive. First of all, they didn't wait for the marshmallow, but second, it wasn't as predictive. It was just predictive of how hungry they were. So our approach to resilience needs to be much more about abundance and support and resources and letting you know that I care for you, uh, putting you in a study group. Um, 
so that that thinking collectively about resilience and about re, you know what what can I provide students with rather than how can I make them tougher uh, is is really what we're missing. And so we, I think we're seeing a lot of that in the change in thinking about student support services where it used to be. Well, I didn't have this, and why why does there have to be a math center and a writing center and tutors and all of that to realizing that in fact having those resources is going to help students persist. Um, and do the really hard work that we want them to do. Could you give me like a, a real life example? If I'm a K through 12 teacher and um, I'm hearing you and that resilience is one of these R's and it's important and I need to do it. Um, give me something in practice that I should be doing. So, so for example, giving students choice, uh, you're giving some agency, right? So we know that motivation uh, you know, starts with salience, right? Is this, is this important for me? Uh, but then it requires competence um, or optimism. So if I have optimism and then I finally have agency, I'm more likely to persist and do math problems. So put the easier problems first and the harder problems at the end, right? If you put problem number five in the middle, that's really hard just because that's the way it kind of worked and I get stuck on problem five, I'm not going to know how to go on. Right. So uh, so staging things so that like a video game, right? I Oh, this is easy. I can do this. And then things gradually get harder. That's probably not something new for most people. But choice. So do I have to do the math problems about fashion? I hate fashion. These word problems don't make any sense to me. Giving people uh, more personalized uh, sets of examples and, and a chance to choose. Right. So I have two problems today. One is about football or rockets and the other is about uh, you know, cooking and gardening or something. And so you, you have a, some choice to choose which set of problems that you do. Uh, and, and here's the order that you should do them in from easier to harder. Uh, so, so thinking about how motivation works, it starts with salience, right? Is this relevant for me? It continues with optimism, right? Am I good at this? And then it also relates to whether I have agency and I'm able to choose and, and make some choices myself. I think you, you said in reference to resilience that the best teacher is a tennis net. Do you, do you want to elaborate? So the tennis net provides immediate feedback that's non-judgmental, right? So in other words, I don't always need a coach going A plus, B minus, you know, move your feet. Um, if you give me more tennis balls sometimes, and again, that's an example of a resource. Just give me more tennis balls. Now I hit the I hit the tennis ball again. Oh, it didn't go over the net. Well, I know that didn't work. I have to fix something. And the first thing I want to do when the tennis ball goes into the net is I want to hit another one, right? Think about how motivating that is, right? Failure as motivator. I want to hit more tennis balls because that didn't work. Um, let me try again. And so oftentimes we don't, right? That's a hard thing to do, right? Video games are hard things to set up in class, but they work for that reason because video games, right? You don't actually die. It's virtual. You get to try again. So, so ways where failure inspires trying again, rather than, oh, you got a D minus, you're, you're not good at this and you shouldn't be in this class. Um, ways, ways where students can hit tennis balls and just, well, here are some more balls. Here are some more to try. Uh, and the last R is uh, reflection. Really changing your mind requires some metacognition, some some thinking about it. And so we do this with feedback all the time, right? So the other problem with feedback is that we give it to you at the end of class and then students look at the grade and they stuff it into the backpack and they get angry and they walk out the room. So my strategy for for feedback is never put grades on an assignment, right? Put them in the computer and hide them. And then give students five minutes or even 10 minutes at the end of class to reflect on your feedback. So in order to do that, you have to put the feedback that you've spent all those hours writing 
on the homework, on the on the problem set, on the paper, and say, so here's the here's your here's my feedback, right? Here's my feedback. Notice non-judgmental. I didn't give you a grade. Here's my feedback. And then some sort of structural, I call it a cognitive wrapper to say, uh, and I give them away for free on teachingnaked.com, the the template for these. Um, So now I want you to reflect, where do you think you lost points? What could you do better next time? Right? Give students some opportunity to take your feedback, actually read it. Then notice if, if, if if I have a grade, I see the grade and I get emotional and then I read your feedback differently. Um, so, you know, we tried this in, in opera results. Cause if you, if you didn't, I, you didn't get the part. Oh, why didn't you get the part? Well, cause you hate me. Right. It's like, uh, they always say that it's like, so I say, so look, so the results to the opera auditions are posted outside the door. I want you to t- reflect a moment. Why do you, where could your audition have been better? Well, I, f- I forgot my lyrics. Ah, since you're actually reflecting and you're thinking about how your audition could have been better, in a different way because you haven't seen that you didn't get the part. And now you think, well, maybe I should work on my lyrics more before I do the next audition. I've actually got you thinking and taking action. And then when you see the, maybe you're still angry, uh, but you've at least had that moment to reflect. So if we want students to think, we have to provide them moments to reflect. There's just no other way around that. And if I'd probably stopped longer with that car key, rather than always having to go someplace in a hurry, I might've said, wait a second. I don't have to take this out of my pocket. Stopping in such a hurry. If if I'm hearing you right, and I'm trying to bring this full circle, you know, you're not saying that reading, writing, writing, and arithmetic aren't important, but you are saying that things are changing so quickly out there in the real world that we need to prepare our students for the unknown, which we even at this moment don't know. So these are the skills that we need to be giving them: relationships, resilience, reflection, and so forth. Is is that right? Well, I think the skills we were always trying to give them was critical thinking, and we weren't we weren't doing as good a job on it as we thought we were. And now critical thinking has become even more important than it ever was, which means we have to teach them process. So in some ways, right, the, the, these three R's are more process. The old three R's were more about content, right, reading, writing, arithmetic, stuff you need to know. And, and relationships, resilience, and reflection are more about what you need to know about yourself so that you can manage your own future change. Because my goal as a teacher is to make myself obsolete so that you don't need me. You can think for yourself on your own. That's my real goal. And so I need to, I need to give you a process. It's, it's not unlike saying, look, I can't come with you to Wimbledon. Here's, here's a bucket of balls, but here's what I need you to, I need you to make sure that when the ball doesn't go over the net, you don't just get mad and hit some more balls, but that you, you think about, could I adjust my footwork? Could I adjust my hand? You know, what should I, here are all the things you might adjust so that now you can now self-regulate yourself when things don't go well at Wimbledon, because I won't be there. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's not just as a teacher, as a parent, even we, we try the same thing. There's at some point where you let that kid go into the real world, you hope you taught him to make yep, the right yep. decisions. And it's very much the same thing, at least in my mind. Yeah, yeah. That, that, no, it's, it's exactly what we all want as parents. We want, we want them to not to say, I don't know what to do, you know, help me. We want them to be able to say, you know, you taught me well. And so I made good, ethical, sound decisions. And I realized I was wrong and I had to go apologize to my friend. And without you telling me, right? Because if I say to you, you have to go apologize to Bob. It's like, well, I will because my parent told me to. But what, what parents really want and what teachers really want is for students to say, you know what? 
I I remember that lesson and it changes the way that I think about the world. Uh, again, you're listening to Jose Antonio Bowen. The new book is Teaching Change, How to Develop Independent Thinkers Using Relationships, Resilience, and Reflection. Uh, this just hit, I guess, about a month ago or so, right? Yeah, it's pretty new. That's great. Um, and I know you've had all that success uh, with your earlier book, Teaching Naked. Best of luck with this one. People can probably find the new book wherever books are sold, I imagine. Amazon, the usual, Johns Hopkins University Press. Also, and there's, there's actually a discount code on my website at josebowen.com to get 30% off at Johns Hopkins. All right, sir. Well, we appreciate that. Are you ready for today's pop quiz? Sure. Hit me. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Oh, I'd like to say music, but that's probably not all right. Uh, y- you know, um, uh, for one subject, uh, you know, physics. Physics? Something basic about the world. And for those that don't know, you are an accomplished uh, musician, so that's probably where part of that uh, love for an answer for music probably came from, right? Yeah, I've been a music teacher in my career, and so I do think about that. And I, and I really do think that what I teach students is useful in terms of how to how to learn to love more kinds of things, how to, right? I'm, if I teach you to love jazz, I've taught you how to change your mind in a, in a, in a funny way. Uh, uh, and so I do think that's essential, but I do think that uh, we got to start with knowledge about the world what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching uh well you know change and ambiguity so tolerance for ambiguity uh you know my three r's of course uh, teaching change but i think we, we have plenty of content we could dial back the content a little bit and teach more process what does every child deserve well every child deserves Teachers that really care about their learning. It turns out that people learn more when they believe the teacher really, really cares. And so caring in your heart is not enough. And it turns out that you don't actually really have to care. Students, it's a perception if students believe that you care. Um, so it's about how do you demonstrate? What are the things that you say? It's that the irony is that right, this, is, this is actually also true about uh, being a good a boss in a multicultural environment, right? Right, supporting equity and racial justice, um, right? It's it's not about what's in your heart; it's about what you do, right? Being an, an anti-racist is about caring about results, and so telling students that they matter, that you care, that you are available, um, that you believe in their success, um, you know, demonstrating to students that you really care is is fundamental. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Well, I think scale is the biggest challenge. I think the world, well, there are two things. One is scale, that uh, teaching is unlike anything else. We need more teachers than we need doctors, lawyers, architects, right? It's it's for everybody. Um, But the world is so divided that people are so stuck in their ways that to teach people about change sounds like indoctrination. It's not. In fact, the reason the book has that subtitle is because I want to create independent thinkers, not people who think like me, um, which is what people think happens in college, is that are they going to learn how to think like you, uh, like the way you're, this is the way you're supposed to think. Um, And it's really hard to not do that because we all have our preferences. So really teaching students how to think independently has never been harder. What's the best gift to give an educator? Uh, other than a copy of my book, I'm thinking. Uh, <laughs> no, let's see. Um, you know, really would be time, right? T- the same thing we want to give students, time for reflection. Time, You know, teaching is hard work. And the only way to get better at it is to have time to say, well, let me, you know, rethink how I do this. And so, uh, t- t- you know, time to rethink how am I presenting this? How did this work? Uh, what could I do better next time? Which teacher changed your life? 
Well, you know, it's funny. So I, you know, everybody, ha- I remember teachers uh, in college. I remember M- Mrs. Mertens in high school, um, who I did not like at the time. It was the classic story, you know, of the English teacher who made us write those five paragraph essays that I now, of course, despise. Um, but she was the first teacher who had really high standards. And so it's another thing that teachers need to remember that that both high standards and caring are important. One by themselves is not enough. She had high standards and she believed that I could succeed. Um, and that really mattered. Which book have you read, loved, and want to recommend to our listeners? Uh, so I, I really like um, Robert Sapolsky's Behave. Uh, it is... Uh, a great summary way of thinking about the human being. Uh, it's very long though. Uh, so uh, maybe I should, I should go with noise, which I've just read, which is the, the new book from Danny Kahneman uh, and, uh, and, and some co-authors, Cass Sunstein and Olivier Sabone uh, about, we, you know, we talk about bias all the time, but there's also lots of noise in the way we make decisions and the way we think. So uh, let me, I should go with that. Great stuff. Again, uh, you're listening to Jose Antonio Bowen. The new book is Teaching Change, How to Develop Independent Thinkers Using Relationships, Resilience, and Reflection. Sir, we appreciate you joining us on Class Dismissed. Thanks very much. It was great to be here. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.